I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Hello, Lisa, Tom. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. I wondered, um, the way we're normally opening these, uh, these videos is to ask uh, people to introduce themselves and, and say a little, a little bit about what they do. So I wondered if I might hand over to both of you to do that to begin. Perhaps Lisa, if you wanted to start. Okay, so I'm Lisa Hopkins. I'm Professor of English at Sheffield Hallam University, where I've worked roughly since Noah uh, brought the Ark to rest. Uh, and I've been interested in the Cavendishes for just about that long. And I'm Tom Rutter. I'm Senior Lecturer in Shakespeare and Renaissance Drama at the University of Sheffield. Um, and I'm, my interest is particularly in the drama, and that's why I'm contributing a chapter on uh, Ben Jonson to this collection. So you're, you're here today to talk about uh, a book that's coming out, am I right in saying next month? Yes. On the Cavendishes, which is a companion to the Cavendishes. We're going to speak a little bit about that in this video. And the Cavendishes are a, a sort of, well, a, a, as they're defined and treated in this, in this collection, a 16th and 17th century dynasty, I suppose, or, or family. And I wondered if you might say a little bit more about why this group of people warrant this, this rather large um, and important uh, companion that you've, you've edited together. Uh, and maybe you could say a little bit about who they are. So the one that everyone's heard of is Margaret Cavendish because she wrote a massive amount and was interested in lots of different things. But for me, it's actually, it wasn't Margaret who was the starting point. It was these two. It was Lady Jane Cavendish and Lady Elizabeth Brackley, uh, who, as you can see, are very appropriately dressed for a Zoom call. They obviously made preparations for that. And I did my PhD on John Ford, and while I was reading Ford, it dawned on me that he'd dedicated a play to their father, to the Earl of Newcastle, and that the two sisters wrote a play which seems to be influenced by Ford. And it's a funny play, and it doesn't, in some ways, it doesn't really look like what you expect at, at a work of literature to do. It doesn't tick quite all the normal boxes, but it has the most extraordinary couple of lines in it, and that, that's where, that's why I went off Cavendishing and never actually stopped. And they wrote it while they were besieged in Welbeck Abbey by parliamentary forces. And at one point, one character says to another, how did you cope when you were brought before the parliamentary commander? That must have been awful for you. How did you manage? And she says, I practiced Cleopatra when she was in her captivity. I just thought, yes, that's, that's the play for me. Uh, and at another point, uh, one of the sisters says to another, we have been brought up in the creation of good languages which will make us ever ourselves. And that idea of two women using language to affirm their identity, uh, and I've discovered since, I didn't realize this at the time, one of the things that really distressed royalist women was the appalling language of the parliamentary uh, soldiers, lang words they'd never heard before, words they didn't even re necessarily recognize as language. And they counter that with their play. So 
For me, the heart of the Cavendish family is Jane and Elizabeth, but that's not all of them. I'll hand over to Tom now and he can explain who, who the rest of them are. And, indeed, no. I mean, um, the, the, the Cavendish family sort of spirals off chronologically and geographically in all sorts of interesting directions beyond uh, what, what Lisa's identified as, as the heart. And I suppose uh, Bess of Hardwick being uh, a, a central and foundational figure uh, in founding what, you know, what, what becomes this great dynasty, both of uh, the Dukes of, of Devonshire, ultimately, uh, and of Newcastle as well. Um, so the, the families that inhabit these great houses of, of Chatsworth, Welbeck, Hardwick Hall, and, and the like. Um, their interests are really uh, wide-ranging and manifold, you know, beyond literature, including um, science, mathematics, uh, a whole lot of artistic and sculptural patronage as well. So the Cavendishes are interesting both as makers of art and of music and writers of history, and also uh, as some patrons of other people's architecture, building uh, music uh, and sculpture and so forth. Yes, I mean, these people who, when the king comes calling, invite Ben Johnson to write the little entertainment that's going to welcome him as he pops through the door. Yes, precisely. At, at great expense. I mean, it's the most fabulously expensive um, piece of entertainment that, that had, uh, had been uh, you know, displayed in the, in the provinces in, in that time, thought fitter for, you know, for, for, for wonder than for emulation, I think. Um, but that, that's true. So uh, theatrical patronage as well. Um, is, is a, a, a key part of their activities. And also theatrical writing, not just um, Margaret, um, and not just uh, Jane and Elizabeth, as Lisa has, has suggested, but also um, their father, William Cavendish, um, who writes uh, plays both before and after the Restoration um, in collaboration with people like, uh, like Shadwell and, uh, and Shirley. Um, so again, uh, their, their cultural activities are manifold and, uh, and fascinating. I mean, they find themselves throughout, from uh, Bess of Hardwick, who you mentioned there, um, kind of throughout the next, what, 150 years or so, really at the centre of, or, or just next door to, a number of the main, uh, not just kind of cultural events, but also political, um, political unfoldings throughout the country, um, and I guess beyond as well. So I wondered whether you might, uh, speak a little bit about why the Cavendishes as a family, why this collective are, are really important to um, to have a a, a a collection that kind of rethinks their place uh, in 16th and 17th century culture. You know, why are the Cavendishes so important in this regard? Well, you're quite right to talk about their um, political uh, importance. I mean, of course, um, William Cavendish, the um, first Duke of Newcastle uh, is Charles I's sort of general in, in the north. Um, not entirely successfully. We know how that one ended. <laughs> it has to be said. And I think the history, you know, historians debate about um, the extent of his military competence or otherwise. But yes, these are people who are involved in some of the foremost um, political and military as well as cultural activities of their day. And William Cavendish at the the Devonshire branch is very instrumental in bringing William of Orange over and, and the Glorious Revolution. Uh, I should say I indexed the book and it was a monstrous persecution really of any indexer but there are several separate individuals called William Cavendish. There's a fair sprinkling of Charles's, uh, a couple of Elizabeth's and by the end of it I, I did think I would scream if anybody said William Cavendish to me ever again. You, you've mentioned so it's a fabulous christening entertainment. 
uh, that uh, Ben Johnson wrote. And it's yes. not altogether clear which Cavendish is being referred to here. And that perhaps testifies to the potential for um, you know, confusion of names that, uh, that, that Lisa's referred to. <laughs> I mean, you've raised a couple of the, the um, important family members there uh, in, in the last few minutes. What, I, I guess one of the other things about the Cavendish is that they, uh, as you mentioned, Lisa, are uh, a really important a dynasty of kind of female writers and, and other kind of cultural contributors. Uh, and I wondered if you might uh, introduce us to, um, to, some of the, to some of those really amazing women who are uh, kind of creating new genres and also kind of adapting old ones uh, in the period in question. Well, I would want to start with Bess of Hardwick, and Bess of Hardwick is often mocked because there's no library at Hardwick Hall, and everyone thinks, oh, she was a complete Philistine. But actually, she doesn't communicate through words, she communicates through needlework. Uh, and the visual programme of Hardwick Hall, which luckily we happen to still have, is quite astonishing in the, the, the ways that it expresses Bess's personality, her interests, it uses uh, mythology, it, it uses all sorts of visual allusions to, to communicate just as clearly, really, as her great-granddaughters are going to do in a play. So it might seem odd that you get this extraordinarily literary family descending from Bess and from uh, her husband, Sir William, who always seems to have been a bit of a brute, actually. Uh, but I don't think it is that. I think they are just continuing by other means uh, the ways in which she writes. And two of her granddaughters write recipe and remedy books, which are, they're not literature in the classic sense, but they do nevertheless have interesting elements and are susceptible of analysis and as for Margaret she's going to experiment in virtually every genre you ever heard of and some some uh, genres that her contemporaries hadn't heard of because she's basically going to start inventing the novel towards the end of her writing career so yes they're, they're, they're doing almost everything they can think of actually to get a message out there I always think of those Cavendish households including Hardwick Hall as like beacons communicating out across the countryside and that sense of multiple genres and forms is really important. I think we have a chapter on Michael Cavendish, um, the composer, um, you know, indicating that the family is interested in, and uh, an aptitude for music. But also, of course, we have houses like um, like Cavendish and like Bolsover, um, which deserves to be much more visited. Oh, I, yes. I think you know it's home to these amazing um, wall paintings that have been um, interpreted as. Uh, in, you know, almost a, a, a theatrical statement about, about the family, about their, their priorities and concerns. So it's almost a kind of board in Bolsover. And the house itself becomes almost a stage set that you, you, know, that you can move between uh, the, the, the different scenes of as, uh, as different paintings um, you know, uh, unfurl before your eyes. And our final chapter is on tombs and those tombs are talking too actually they're getting absolutely um, and of course you know funerary elegies but also these tombs are, are significant as works of, of sculpture making statements about who the Cavendishes thought they were and what kind of values they associated themselves with so this is really a family that's both working in and patronizing a whole variety of cultural forms quite apart from their um, their as, as we said political um, importance we've not yet spoken about um uh, their, their, their guardianship, if that's the right word to use, of Mary Queen of Scots, or of the, 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 the sad history of uh, Arbella Stewart. Um, so these, these people touch on um, 16th and 17th century British history in so many ways. I think that sense of, um, uh, of, of the kind of talents radiating out from the family uh, to, 
you, uh, yeah, to, to just so many major events happening in that kind of period is really interesting. And Arbella Stewart, who you mentioned there, is is a is a fascinating example of that. Um, might, might you want to say a word or two about Arbella Stewart? Should I do first, Lisa? Yes, yeah, she is an incredible figure. Uh, she is she she inherits that tradition of communicating in multiple ways. Uh, she did apparently write, we don't have any of the things that she wrote, which is a, a great shame. I you know, just still hope that they might turn up one day, but at the moment we can't read the poetry that she supposedly penned. Uh, she's sitting in the middle of Derbyshire, fluent in several languages, uh, and I happened to be reading one of her letters today, and she says, uh, if you can find out out about my cousin's betrothal. I just thought that's extraordinary that she's sitting there using out and uh, the way that a Sheffield lass might well use it today. Uh, she She's a figure who's both local and, and in a strange sort of way global and the other thing, the, the point that this article was making was in 1609 she got into some kind of trouble, we don't know what. She may have been uh, dabbling in uh, negotiations for her cousin's marriage. She may have been nego negotiating to marry the Prince of Moldavia, or she might have uh, converted to Catholicism plotting some kind of coup. And that's Abella all over. We don't really know what she was. She's infinitely suggestive. And yet at the same time, she's, she's, she's remote from us because we can't read what she supposedly wrote and her letters are not always terribly coherent uh, it may well have been the case that she suffered from porphyria she may have had intermittent bouts of what we would probably now term insanity uh, certainly of incoherence uh, and she doesn't always tell the truth uh, there's a whole series of letters in which she pretends that she's got this extraordinary amazing lover who's going to turn up and rescue her uh, and this absolutely petrifies the queen's emissary sir henry branker who hot foots it up to hardwick and says who is this guy and she says i'm not telling you i'm not telling you and then after a while she says it's, it's my cousin the king of scots and he thinks oh my god we've got a plot but she's just made all that up the king of scots is not in love with her he's never even met her um, and when he does meet her it's not going to be all that keen quite frankly but She's, she's just an amazingly interesting and compelling figure and of course it is a tragic story one has to feel i always do feel extremely sorry for arbella you mentioned um the the kind of perceptions about not there not being a library for instance at hardwick hall and um uh, and you've talked a little bit about margaret cavendish who uh, is often to be found i think in, in classrooms uh you know it's uh particularly in university classrooms, studying her work. Um, but perhaps some of these figures are, are less well-known. And I wondered what, how you might define, I guess, the, the view, the prevailing scholarly view or cultural view of the Cavendishes now, uh, and what your collection might do to kind of advance or revise that view of the family. Well, I mean, as you say, um, it is uh, Margaret Cavendish who gets um, the lion's share of attention. Um, and to to some extent, her, her uh, stepdaughters as well as well for their their, their drama. So it's in, it's in those fields perhaps that um, they've got most prominence. I suppose looking at the Cavendishes as a family, as a dynasty, or even as a group of dynasties, just offers a way of changing the focus. Looking at how things unfold over the decades, how certain concerns remain the same over the decades, and how I think also. Um, you know, this seems to have been a family, perhaps like the Sydneys, in which you know, it was that, that you know there was a relatively amenable environment in which women were able to write 
and express themselves in ways that might not have been the case in other spheres as well. I think that is something that's quite distinctive um, about them. Um, you know, their, their uh, you know, amenability to, to, to women's writing, women's patronage, women's cultural activities. Um, so I'm hoping that's something that we're able to, sorry, Lisa. I was just going to say, and I really would want to put in a word for William Cavendish, because people make fun of William. He was, he was a pretty poor general. He's not a very brilliant playwright, and he liked paintings of naughty ladies on his ceilings. But he did let them write. And a couple of years ago, we went down to Colchester Castle, and at exactly the same time as William's having naked ladies painted at Bolsover, Matthew Hopkins is burning witches in Colchester Castle. And really, I think a little like pornography seems the more savoury thing in that context. I'm, I'm dumbfounded. <laughs> well. Um, but yes, absolutely. So this sense of a, a, a wider family context within which to view these kinds of activities. Um, what else do we hope to... I, I think there's also a sense of recuperating relatively minor figures, as Lisa says, of William. You know, there's um, Michael Cavendish, the composer, and we've talked about. There's George Cavendish, the biographer of Cardinal Wolsey, um, amongst, amongst other things. Um, and I, I think the fact that one's not looking at individual writers, but looking at a whole family and its culture, offers a way of bringing these people into the fold. We'd have loved to have included something about Charles Cavendish as well, William Cavendish's um, brother, who corresponds, well, he himself is um, a significant scientist and mathematician of his day, but he, um, he uh, corresponds with people like Descartes, uh, Marcel, and so on. You know, he is someone who is part of the European Republic uh, of Letters. And looking at the, at the family as a whole you know, enables you to get a bit more of a purchase on, on these kinds of individuals, I think. And indeed onto their houses as well. Um, you know, we've included uh, chapters on, for example, the, the houses of, uh, of, the, of the, the, the Devonshires in particular, talking about Chatsworth and so on. You know, these buildings have lives of their own. And there are, you know, their own biographies that can be included and brought into uh, a, a book like this one. I'm also struck by, by I guess, the, I mean, one thing when you're looking at families in the period uh, in which, you know, th this book covers the 16th and 17th centuries, is that there's, there's very particular kind of historical uh, uh, elements to, to questions like status and uh, whether you're the firstborn or the eldest um, male child. And a lot of Cavendishes that seem, that seem to be uh, very interesting kind of curious figures are not necessarily the um you know the sort of the firstborn child there's uh there's lots of uh remarried um i think margaret cavendish is the youngest daughter for instance so um yeah i just I, i'm quite interested by how uh the framework that you're setting up looking at the whole family and its offshoots uh can take in i guess the very wide variety of experience that people had even within a, an elite family like the cavendish Yes, I think that's true. And that's something also that perhaps you can trace back to Bess of Hardwick because she had uh, sisters and stepsisters and uh, half-sisters and she brings them into the household and she also seems, by the way, to have been a very good stepmother, which is perhaps not quite the image that you would associate with Bess of Hardwick. But when she remarries uh, a man who's got children of his own, she, she looks after them uh, and one of them goes from being Catherine in her letters to my Kate and I just think 
that sense of everyone's welcome, that, that is very much a Cavendish ethos, it's inclusivity. Some elder brothers, you know, pretty down in their younger brothers in the period, William Cavendish seems to have been always very good to Charles. Those two brothers loved each other, and I'm not sure how often you see that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I um I, I wondered about uh, and you mentioned quite early on, uh, Lisa and and um, Tom just saying there about the the wider family or perhaps the the lesser known um, people in the family being recuperated and, and and celebrated and explored in this in this collection. Uh, you you mentioned earlier things uh, the phrase what you might expect works of literature to do. Uh, and I suppose the, the many wonderful individuals that fall within the, the compass of this study are doing things that challenge that expectation in some degree. Um, and uh, I mean, we, we ask all contributors on, on this show to talk about the term literature. And this feels like perhaps quite a good opportunity to ask you two about what th that word literature is doing with expectations, what, what you know, a very charged term like that might mean. Well, I think I'd, I'd start by um, just repeating some of the, the comments I made, I made earlier about how their activities sort of transcend the, you know, the, the conventionally literary. You know, the Cavendishes encourage us to think about how a funerary monument, monument can be literature or how a country house can be read as, as literature, quite apart from um, the works of someone like, like Margaret Cavendish, who's writing you know, between the fields of literature and science, if you like, and you know, arguably inventing uh, you know, science fiction in English as she does it. So there's a real sense of literary experiment, also a sense that what literature might be goes beyond, um, uh, you know, goes, goes beyond the typical genres. And I think that's true of drama as well. I mean, when we think of 16th and 17th century drama, obviously we think of the public playhouses and Shakespeare and the like. You know, but by focusing on a family like the Cavendishes, we get to see what's happening um, you know, in provincial big houses. We get to see the, the closet drama, if that's the right term to use, that um, Jane and Elizabeth are writing. Uh, we get to see the, you know, the, the, the plays uh, of a very different sort that, that, that Margaret is writing. Um, so there's a real sense of you know, moving beyond and playing with and testing the boundaries of the accepted genres, I think. So I want to go back to uh, Elizabeth, which is this one. So Elizabeth's husband was one of the young men who danced in Milton's Comus. He was that was a family entertainment for, commissioned by his father. And when I first came across the play, there wasn't such a thing as a modern edition of the Concealed Fantasies. I read it in a, a PMLA article edited by Nathan Comfort Starr. And in my head was, oh, it might be just like Comus. And it's so not. Uh, and one of the reasons that it's not, of course, is because Comus is available in modern editions. But the first thing I thought was they can't even spell. And I know nobody in the 17th century can spell, but the Cavendishes go further off piece than most people with their spelling. And they don't scan and they don't do other things that they have no formal education, these women. And in that sense, it doesn't look like literature. But if literature is something that you want to keep reading, then Concealed Fancies for me has been something I've wanted to keep reading for 30 years. I've kept coming back to it. Uh, and every time that I have done so, I've found new things in it. That's really interesting. I, yeah, I, I'm, um, one of the things I'm really interested in, sort of coming out of the, the different methodologies and, and lines of inquiry that you've, you've just been raising is, the form of the edited collection itself and using 
um, this particular forum. I mean, there's always lots of discussions about uh, publishing and, and, and different forums in which you might do important scholarly work, I suppose. Uh, and I wondered whether you, you, you might have something to say about what's a, a really huge endeavour. I mean, this is a, this is a large collection with, with <laughs> a lot of contributors. Um, yeah, and, and I wondered, uh, I, I was quite intrigued to hear more about the process of editing a collection like this and what you think the value of bringing together a number of different scholarly voices on different topics is. Well, I'm really glad you've um, come to that question, actually, because I'm kind of aware that Lisa and I have been responding to your questions uh, as, uh, as best we can but of course the real interest in this book isn't in the things that we're contributing it's in the, the chapters that the contributors have, have written yeah, and that's where the that's where the you know let's talk a bit more about that and i hope we're able to name as many of the contributors as we possibly can without without being uh without uh, we can do things in a collection like this that um, might not fit so straightforwardly into um, into to, to journal articles. You know, we're able we've been able to reach out and and you know find people to contribute things about subjects we don't you know understand so well. So even music would be one exact one obvious example of that. You know, we're able to draw on other people's expertise um, and, uh, and 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 bring them into the picture. Yes, and even little things like when the Cavendishes went to Antwerp after Marston won, they had to go into exile. They stay in the Rubens house. I mean, not everybody gets to stay in the Rubens house, but we got uh, somebody to write about that. We got uh, some Tom and I could never have done ourselves. Uh, there's stuff about scientific writing that I couldn't have done, certainly. So we needed a diverse range of voices. And I think the other thing that I want to say is there could have been much, much more. Uh, we are really sorry we couldn't include a chapter on Charles. We did at various stages. We had chapters on Charles Promise, but none of them came to anything. Yeah, we could have included something on, on this is the beginning. Thomas Hobbes, for example. Yes, we could. Uh, as, as, as a tutor to various family members and, and you know, close associate of them. So their, their sort of influence um, spreads, uh, spreads widely, I think. Only I think the fact that there could have been more is rather testament to the well, the importance and necessity of having a collection like this in the first place. And um, I, I, I mean, ideally, this will therefore prompt people to continue to work on those, those kind of angles, and, um, develop, you know. Sorry. Um, sorry for cutting across you. Um, yeah, we're really trying to do two things. One is to provide a useful resource to um, future scholars who are going to be working on the Cavendishes, uh, direct them towards um, the resources that they're going to find useful, say, you know, this is some of the work that people have been doing. But also it is, you know, very much to say, there's so much that can still be done um, in this field. And we hope this will be a prompt to, um, to, to, to future scholarship rather than simply a monument to existing scholarship. We were at word camp. We couldn't have fitted in one word more pretty much. Uh, that's the only reason why we didn't carry on. Mm. I think that, that that's very exciting, really, to hear and to think about. Um, yeah, and 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 doubtless the book will will really infuse and excite people to to pick up that mantle and and keep pursuing that that research. I wondered before we finish whether there was anything else uh, you wanted to kind of to bring up that we haven't perhaps covered uh, so far in the conversation.
Oh, it's that terrible end of interview question. Yeah. <laughs> Was there anything you wanted to ask us? <laughs> uh, you've, you've, you've stumped me. Um, Sorry. I mean, yeah. No, I don't think there is really. I think we've we've got across that we think that they're extremely interesting. We hope we've stimulated other people to go and, and read them. I think I would perhaps say don't be put off by the fact it doesn't none of the, the work they produce looks quite exactly perhaps as you expect it to. That doesn't mean it's not really, really interesting when you get into it. Yeah, that's that's really. I mean, yeah, that's interesting for so many uh, reasons that connect to that earlier point about uh, what literature is and what expectations might have been set up by uh, more recent uh, kind of framing to that answer that the Cavendishes might might perhaps challenge. So I think that's quite exciting. And I suppose just in terms of um, adding something, I I do feel I ought to give a bit more prominence to. Um, the, the contributors themselves, who I am going, uh, whose names I am going to to, to rattle off. Um, sorry, that sounds very disrespectful, but I, I think it's really important to, um, to 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 recognise the book is about them and not really about us. So, um, if if you if you pick up the companions to the Cavendishes, you will find Gavin Schwartzleeper on George Cavendish, Keith Green on the music of Michael Cavendish, Crosby Stevens on Balls Over Castle, Matthew Stegall on uh, the playwright William Cavendish, uh, Richard Wood on William Cavendish and his piece Nostalgia. Um, Rachel Willey on William Cavendish and Courtiership, uh, Elaine Walker on Horses. Um, that is an aspect of William Cavendish's uh, interest, which was um, particularly important to him, but we've, which we've not spoken about at all. Uh, so Elaine Walker on Horses, um, James Fitzmorris on Margaret Cavendish in Antwerp, Lisa Walters on Epicureanism, um, Sarah Muller on uh, uh, the, the manuscripts of Jane and Elizabeth, uh, Hero Chalmers on the Cavendish and their poetry, Daniel Cadman on um, the Concealed Fancies, so again that play by, by Jane and uh, Elizabeth, Katie Gill on War, uh, Andrew Duxfield on Margaret Cavendish's The Unnatural Tragedy in the Blazing World, Lyra Sarasone on Margaret Cavendish and pa uh, Patronage, Dominica Lavascio on Margaret Cavendish and Julius Caesar, uh, Lena Cotigny on, on uh, Epicureanism. Um, Brandy Siegfried on, uh, on the novel, Susan Wiseman on the Devonshires and, uh, and their, their houses, and Eva Lowenstein on funerary monuments. So uh, thank you for letting me uh, to, uh, just in, in ensure that, uh, that uh, we do justice, or do brief justice at least, to the, the wide range of contents of this collection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that really, that really speaks to its breadth uh, of, of kind of media and subjects and, and people. Um, yeah, that's really great to hear. Thank you for that. Well, I mean, and thank you both for coming on uh, and, and talking about it. I mean, yeah, hopefully this can go out kind of uh, leading up to or, or in sync with the release of the collection itself. Um, yeah. Yes, we hope so. We'll keep a keen eye on that. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, both. Well, thank you so much thank for you. giving us the chance to talk yes. to you about the Cavendishes. Oh, pleasure. And we've enjoyed it. Goodbye. <laughs> a bit late celebrating creativity and research of all kinds.